Hello, welcome to Second Chances, the Persuasion Podcast. My name is Grace. And I'm Tom. And we're going through Jane Austen's Persuasion chapter by chapter. And today we are reading chapter six. But Tom, why don't you give us the quickest recap on chapter five? Uh oh, pressure's on. Okay, uh, volume one, chapter five. The Elliots are leaving Kelly and Shaw to be lit by Admiral and Mrs. Croft. Uh, Sir Walter, Elizabeth, and Mrs. Clay are all on their way to Bath, much to the dismay of Lee Russell, who does not want Mrs. Clay to go with them. And neither does Elizabeth. Elizabeth even tries to warn Elizabeth, like, hey, I don't know if we can trust this Mrs. Clay. She might have designs on our father. And Elizabeth pretty much dismisses this right away. Um, so they leave... And then Anne spends a week with Lady Russell at Kelly Inch Lodge, and after that, Lady Russell drops her off at Uppercross, where the Musgroves and Anne's sister Mary lives. Remember, she's married to Charles Musgrove. And we get a little interaction between Anne and Mary. Mary is just like, I'm so sick, no one knows how sick I am, everyone mistreats me etc etc <laughs> she's not really that sick she's not really sick at all <laughs> and then it ends where they take a little visit up to the great house at upper cross where they meet with mrs musgrove and their twin daughters henrietta and louisa well i guess they're not twins just they're their two eldest daughters no yeah they're not twins they're but, not twins but they yeah. are sisters and they're very close they're very close and then the chapter ends where miss uh henrietta louisa Mary and Anne all go for a little walk. Yep. All right, all right, cool. So what happens in this chapter, Grace, before we get into it? Okay, so chapter six is almost slower, sort of like um, like a quick like run-through of Anne's time spent at Uppercross. She basically finds out that, like, you know, all of the stuff that she's been so worried about regarding Kelly and Hall, like, no one else really seems to care very much about. Um, and in fact, this is true with, you know, the Musgroves. They're more just sort of, like, concerned with their own lives. Um, she, and as we discover, has sort of become the de facto, like, per, uh, confidant of a lot of, uh, of Mary and Charles Musgrove, where they're always, and, and, and the, um, the elder Musgroves, too, at the Great Hall. She sort of becomes the confidant of all of these people, and she kind of uh, becomes, like, a, a mediator, just saying the right things, but also, like, you know, she doesn't exactly have much, like, authority or influence to do anything. Um, she just kind of, and en- she just ends up absorbing a lot of, like, everyone's, like, griefs and strifes and gossips and things like that. And she, she sort of, she takes it all in stride, too. Um, eventually, I don't want to get too much into it, but basically, um, the, the Musgroves, they throw a lot of parties, and in one particular party... They find out that um, Admiral Croft's, uh, or rather, sorry, Mrs. Croft's brother will be coming soon. And um, to Anne's, let's say maybe anxiety, it is indeed the Captain Wentworth that she's been dreading, maybe anticipating, seeing a lot of feelings going on there. And so we have that to look forward to in the horizon. And then I think I'll just stop with the summary there. <laughs> okay, and we'll get into it. We'll get into it. Uh, as I mentioned in the last episode, I, you know, we got a lot of setup to this story. There's a lot of backstory be- before we can get going, but we're truly in the thick of the narrative now. Mm-hmm. I feel like this 
book is kind of broken up into sections based on the location. Yeah. So, like, the first, like, four chapters, four and a half chapters are all Kelly Inch. That's kind of the introduction to the novel. And now I feel like the first real section here is at Upper Cross, and then we'll have Lime and Bath after this, and then the conclusion. So I, we're into the, the thick of the first the first real section here. Yeah, yeah. The first section of the action. Mm-hmm. And we already can kind of see how this change of scenery is starting to change things for Anne a little bit. Yeah, we'll see that she's definitely sort of taking the forefront of the narrative now. Um, but yeah, let's, let's, let's get into it. Okay. Do you want to start us off? Sure. Uh, chapter six. Anne had now wanted, had not needed, this visit to Uppercross to learn that a removal from one set of people to another, though at a distance of only three miles, will often include a total change of conversation, opinion, and idea. Great. So, like I was saying, <laughs> uh, she goes to Uppercross, things are different here, yep, right? completely different. No longer the stuffy environment that is Kelly and Shaw. And yeah, like you said, Grace, wanted means needed. Mm-hmm. She had not needed a visit to Uppercross to learn that going from one set of people to another equals total change of conversation, opinion, and idea, right? Yep. Even if it's only at a distance of three miles. She had never been staying there before without being struck by it or without wishing that other Elliots could have her advantage in seeing how unknown or unconsidered there were the affairs which at Kelly and Hall were treated as of general publicity and pervading interest. What is this saying? So she doesn't even have to stay there very long to realize that, like, you know, the things that are of, like, huge import at Kelly and Hall, other people don't really care about. Mm-hmm. They, Not, have other yeah. thing, they have other things to think about. Not only are these things treated as very important at Kelly and Hall, but they're, like, talked of as if the rest of the world cares about <laughs> them, right? What do you think some of these topics of conversation at Kelly and Hall could be that they just assume <laughs> are of general publicity and interest? Well, the big one, I think, is the whole situation of Kelly and Shaw being led. Right. But also maybe, like, the things that Sir Walter says that he thinks is important, but that, like, we all know does not, no one really cares about. Right. Or, like, did you see the kind of dinner these people gave? Like, did you see the dinner that we just gave? You did know, you see the, how uh... orange this newly made lord's face was? <laughs> right. <laughs> the Musgroves do not care about the concerns of Sir Walter. Mm. And, yeah, when it says wishing that other Elliot's could have her advantage in seeing how little concern there is for the hot topics at Kelly Inch. Who who, who are these other Elliots? Sir Walter and Elizabeth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. Specifically Sir Walter. Yeah, it is kind of interesting. She here she knows she knows that her family needs to sort of like you know, be sort of taken down a peg or like can, can at least like learn to be a little more humble about their own affairs, and realize they're not the center of the universe. Right. Just in particular to realize, I think that, like, you hit the nail on the head, that the things they care about are not necessarily the things that everyone in the world (laughs) cares about. Yet, with all this experience, she believes she must now submit to feel that another lesson in the art of knowing our own nothingness beyond our own circle was become necessary for her. For certainly, coming as she did, with a heart full of the subject which had been completely occupying both houses in Kelly Inch for many weeks, she had expected rather more curiosity and sympathy than she found in the separate but similar remark of Mr. and Mrs. Musgrove. Okay, alright, well let's pause there real briefly. Yeah. So she has come to Uppercross before in previous 
trips, right? Mm-hmm. And she was like, I wish the other Elliots could see how little of how little concern their highest priorities are here, right? Yeah. But even with this knowledge, she didn't expect there to be so little curiosity and sympathy from the Musgroves in regards to what in particular? The letting of Kelly and Hall. Right. Even Anne expected them to have more things to say and more questions to ask about the letting of Kelly mm-hmm. and Hall other than what is in fact really asked. Yeah. Right. Which is what? Uh, which is, so, Miss Anne, Sir Walter and your sister are gone. And what part of Bath do you think they will settle in? And this... Without much waiting for an answer, uh, or in the young lady's edition of, I hope we shall be in Bath in the winter, but remember, Papa, if we do go, we must be in a good situation. None of your queen squares for us. Or in the anxious supplement from Mary of, upon my word, I shall be pretty well off when you are all gone away to be happy at Bath. <laughs> all right, so okay. here's, we get like sort of three different um, responses. Mm-hmm. Four, I guess if you, I mean, it's it's three because they kind of lump Mr. and Mrs. Musgrove okay. together. Yeah, it says that uh, Anne expected to rather more curiosity and sympathy than what she found in the separate but very similar remarks of Mr. and Mrs. Musgrove, which is, what part of Bath do you think your father <laughs> and sister will settle in? Yeah. This is a direct quote of Mr. Musgrove, we know, because we later get this quote from one of the sisters saying, like, pa-pa-pa, right? <laughs> yeah. But I think the implication is, is... Both Mr. and Mrs. Musgrove asked, like, basically the same question at different times. This was all they had to say of the move, right? Let's say, yeah, uh, Mrs. Mrs. Musgrove is co-signing this this question right. with Mr. Musgrove. This is, it, it basically means that's the height, that's the extent of both Mr. and Mrs. Musgrove's interest in the whole affair, which is where they're going to settle in Bath, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, on top of that, one of the sisters has to say, and this doesn't have anything to do with the Elliots, I hope we get to go to Bath, right? <laughs> yeah, but if we do go to Bath, we want to be in a good spot. None of your queen squares for us. Uh, and I only know this because of the note in Grace's book, but Queen Square was at one time a fashionable part of Bath, but at the time of this being written, there were already newer, more fashionable parts of Bath. <laughs> Priorities. Uh, and then Mary, just to be like... You're all going to be so happy in Bath while I'm going to be stuck here, right? <laughs> wow, I uh, hope you guys have such a great time in Bath while I'm wasting away here. <laughs> <laughs> while I'm literally dying here. <laughs> also, I want to add, um, before all of these quotes, I like that um, the way that it's phrased is that um, this is like a lesson that Anne has to learn mm-hmm. of her own nothingness. Her own nothingness beyond her own circle. Yeah, yeah. which is like, you know, it is of course a joke because it's like, it, it, it's harsh to like, call someone's existence a nothingness but it is interesting that upon you know with Anne's realization of her own sort of um non non what's the word like um inconsequential life Mm. like she doesn't take it as like an insult or an affront she learns that like oh there there there's a world beyond my own my my, my, sorry beyond my own circle beyond my own social circle and I should learn to adapt as a result of it. I shouldn't be, like, upset about it. Uh-huh. This is a great insight into Anne's character, that someone, like, the Musgroves not caring about a situation that's very dear to her heart is, she doesn't take it as an insult, she takes it as a lesson in her own nothingness, <laughs> right? Well, clearly I was thinking too much of my own importance. Yeah, because we all have seen what a, you know, force of nature character Anne is so far <laughs> in this whole book. And I, I think it's supposed to be, like, 
you know, comically heightened a little bit here because Anne is, like, clearly trying to will herself into, like, a state of pre-death almost. <laughs> she, Anne is, like, trying to convince herself that she is, like, a 60-year-old spinster when she's not. <laughs> no. But I do think it's not unfair to say, maybe I'm projecting here, that Austin, like, wishes more people understood their own nothingness. Yeah. I think Austin would honestly tell a lot of people, like... Like, it'd be an important lesson for you to learn that you're nothing beyond your immediate social circle, right? I'm sure there are many people who would benefit from a lesson about their own nothingness, uh, I think. Um, <laughs> we're speaking for Austin right now. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to keep going? Sure. Okay. Anne could only resolve to avoid such self-delusion in future <laughs> and think with heightened gratitude of the extraordinary blessing of having one such truly sympathizing friend as Lady Russell. And so what is the self-delusion that Anne hopes to avoid in the future? That anyone cares about the whole Kelly Inch situation, I think. Specifically that anyone cares about the Kelly Inch situation and general, in general, that anyone would care about anything involved in her life, right? <laughs> yeah. And this is kind of like, um, this is kind of ironic, you know. It's not self-deluding to think someone should have any interest in your life, but it's almost like this is like Anne's... It's almost like Anne thinking to herself, like, don't delude yourself into thinking that people give a shit about you. Care about you. Yeah, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. That shorthand, don't delude yourself into thinking people care about you, because they don't. <laughs> I mean, they don't. Yeah, like, like I Anne mean, is going too far, but based on her experiences, this is not, like, an unreasonable way to try to protect yourself, right? Yeah. Like, when is Anne, of, since Captain Wentworth found, like, I don't know, maybe in Lady Russell, but other than that, found someone who, like, actually cares about her concerns. Anyone new, specific? Like, yeah, like, Lady Russell is barely constitutes a social circle because she's, like, her surrogate mother, you know? So, like, really, like, anyone in society, does anyone in society, like, care about Anne? Okay, not since Captain Wentworth has anyone other than Lady Russell cared about Anne's concerns. That's, I think it's fair to fair. say. And yeah. that's why Anne, the lesson that Anne takes, or, like, the big takeaway from this lesson, which is no one cares about my concerns, is that at least I've got Lady Russell, right? <laughs> at least I have one person who cares. Yeah, I can, you know, I can um, assuage myself with remembering that at least Lady Russell cares. I have one truly sympathizing friend. The Mr. Musgroves had their own game to guard and to destroy. <laughs> the Mr. Musgroves meaning... Charles and Charles Sr. <laughs> Charles Sr. Charles Jr. The two... Yeah, the, the older Mr. Musgrove and the younger Mr. Musgrove. Right, yeah. yeah. So the reason they don't care about Anne's particular concerns is because they have their own game to guard and destroy. Oh, I think that's also a callback to their own game to guard, as in, like, versus the game of Kelly and Hall. Because remember, mm -hmm. like, Sir Walter was, like, concerned about... The, sh the potential shooting that was going to happen on his grounds and all of that nonsense. Uh, well, it is, that's a big deal to a lot of it landowners. Is a big, yes, yeah. yes. Game meaning the animals that live on the property. Right. But I think it's specifically just saying, like, this is what the Mr. Musgroves of the world are concerned with. <laughs> this is why they are not concerned about the, the litting of Kelly Inch Hall, because they're too caught up with maintaining the game on their property and then destroying it, <laughs> like hunting it, right? Right, yeah. Uh -huh. If they hear about Kelly Inch Hall being let, the only thought they could potentially ever have is the game that would be on their property. It's some good game on so their property, like, yeah. I, I don't, so they hear, oh, Kelly Inch Hall will be let, and they're like, oh, well, 
oh wow well like i don't i don't care about the kelly and charles game i care about my own game uh-huh. the, the game on my property i mean there's just a lot of jokes here also like poaching was a really big problem at that time <laughs> but it's for the absurd reason of like don't kill my game like i'm the one who's supposed to kill that deer you know don't yeah. kill my deer that's my for me to kill i don't yeah. want to walk on these grounds and see already dead pheasants uh, yeah okay so this is why these people don't care the mr musgroves had their own game to guard and to destroy their own horses, dogs, and newspapers to engage them. <laughs> Great. And the females were fully occupied in all the other common subjects of housekeeping, neighbors, dress, dancing, and music. All right, so they all have their own concerns. No yeah. one is thinking about Kelly and Hall or the litting of it. Yeah, life goes on. Uh, exactly. And acknowledged it to be very fitting that every little social commonwealth should dictate its own matters of discourse, and hoped, ere long, to become a not unworthy member of the one she was now transplanted into. So she's like, kind of like, she's a survivor. She's mm. like, all right, I'm going to adapt to my new environment and become useful to these folks because they clearly don't give a shit about uh, my past. <laughs> I mean, that's how she's probably had to survive at Kelly and Hall for the, her entire life, yeah. I guess, right? Which just to placate uh. and be useful. I also like this. Every little social commonwealth should dictate its own matters of discourse. It's not every little social community, you know. Mm-hmm. It's spoken of as like in it's like geopolitical a- <laughs> terms, right? Yeah, yeah. like the like like um like upper cross it's its own like kingdom or something like, like that. Like each culture has its own customs and mores, basically. Right? Yeah, right. Yeah. And certainly the customs of like wealthy country folk is different from like the uh, the um, culture of like you know, a baronet, you know. Oh, most certainly. We're going to see that now. Yeah, the customs of the Musgroves are so much different than that of the Elliots. Mm -hmm. Okay, but anyway, Anne is like, (laughs) no more self-delusion. They don't give one crap. The Musgroves (laughs) don't give a crap about the lending of Kelly and Hall. My best bet right now is just to, like, try to adjust to this new, like, social commonwealth that I live in, right? (laughs) Almost as if I'm an immigrant into this new country. (laughs) Yeah, actually. Okay. And acknowledge it to be very fitting that every little social commonwealth should dictate its own matters of discourse, and hoped ere long to become a not unworthy member of the one she was now transplanted into. That's an amazing, that's a great classic Austin double negative, a not unworthy member. <laughs> it also speaks a lot to Anne's psychology. Yeah, not even worthy. Just, Just a, not unworthy. I'm, I hope to not be a waste of space. <laughs> but I mean, like, you know... Sir Walter and Elizabeth have basically been instilling in Anne her whole life, you're a waste of yeah, space, honestly, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's very tragic. So now she's like, that is what Anne now achieves too, is like not being a waste of space, I guess. <laughs> With the prospect of spending at least two months at Uppercross, it was highly incumbent on Anne to clothe her imagination, her memory, and all her ideas and as much of Uppercross, Uppercross as possible. Sounds kind of like upper crust. I was going to say, yeah. that sounds like a, a Freudian a slip there yeah, or something. Yeah. Not Freudian, but like a slip, you know? Um, and ironically, they are not the upper crust of the wealthy. They are not the, the upper crust. Yeah. yeah, it's like, oh, they're not quite upper crust. They're upper cross. They're upper cross, yeah. <laughs> okay, so Anne is going to spend two months there, so it's highly incumbent on her to clothe her imagination, her memory, <laughs> And are all her ideas and as much as upper cross as possible. So forget Kelly Inch. I'm an upper crossian now, right? Any thought in your brain that is not related to upper cross, get it out of your head right now and replace them with everything, all all things upper cross. Right. And why? Why? Why do you? Why do you? So that she can be like a useful 
part of this this society, uh, this Commonwealth society. That's right. And also, they don't care about anything that's <laughs> going on in Kelly Inch. Yeah. Not really. No. She's, yeah. It's, it's like, you can see the gears in her head shifting. Okay. It continues. Anne had no dread of these two months. Mary was not so repulsive and unsisterly as Elizabeth, nor so inaccessible to all influence of hers, meaning Anne. So this is, this is Mary's big quality, the big check in her <laughs> column. She's not so repulsive and unsisterly as Elizabeth. <laughs> and also, she's not so inaccessible to all of Anne's influences. So yeah, at least Anne will like have some, will make some, some modicum of an impact on Mary's behavior, maybe. Uh, more, more double negatives. Not so unsisterly, not so inaccessible. Yeah. Okay. Neither was there anything among the other component parts of the cottage inimical to comfort. Great. I, I think the component parts meaning the other people who live around there, right? Like mm-hmm. the Musgroves, the people, Mary's children, Charles Musgrove, who's Mary's married to, Mr. and Mrs. Musgrove, the whole Great House family, etc. Yep. Okay. Anne was always on friendly terms with her brother-in-law, and in the children who loved her nearly as well and respected her a great deal more than their mother. Great. And had an object of interest, amusement, and wholesome exertion. So, you know, she's got a good relationship, friendly relationship with Charles Musgrove. He did propose to her at one point, (laughs) and she said no, but now they're on good terms. We'll talk about this more soon. And also, she gets along with the children better than Mary does herself, basically. Yeah. And it gives her something to do while she's there. And it gives her something to do. She, yeah, it's clear, well, we'll see this later on, but yeah, she is... She seems to be like way more, um, way more like a like a, a more um, like a better fit almost for the family than even Mary is. They're gonna say this later. Spoiler alerts! But the Musgroves, I think it's Mrs. Musgrove, or is it one of the Henrietta Louisa? Someone in the Musgrove family says we all wished and <laughs> that it had been you instead of Mary that Charles had married. <laughs> uh, okay, I you want to read the next paragraph because this this is going to talk about Charles Musgrove a little bit, and right. then we'll talk about him. Okay, Charles Musgrove was civil and agreeable in sense and temper. He was undoubtedly superior to his wife. Mm-hmm. He had better sense and temper, right? Yeah, but not of powers. Powers meaning abilities or conversation or grace to make the past as they were connected together at all a dangerous contemplation. Mm-hmm. So okay, what does that mean? He's yeah. civil. He's you know very. It seems like he's very milk toast. He's Let's civil see. and agreeable. Yeah. yeah. And undoubtedly his temper and sense is superior to his wife. So he's smarter and calmer, like not prone to, uh, this is going to sound a little sex- sexist, but like hysterics. He's more reasonable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but not of abilities. He's not very, he's smart. He's not very smart. He's, he's not, like, the sharpest tool in the shed, I guess. Yeah. Like, to say that he's smarter than Mary is not a huge, um, like, compliment. It's like, he's still not super intelligent. I think he's more sensible, but I, I think it's probably fair to say that Mary is, like, more intelligent mm-hmm. in a way. Like, she can probably, like, she probably reads more. Maybe she, like, has a, l- a little better understanding of, like, how certain things work. Mm-hmm. Uh, or conversation or grace. So he's not a great conversationalist, and he doesn't have a lot of just, like, general grace. Yeah, I guess, he's not right? a very charming yeah, guy. Yeah. To make the past, as they were connected get, oh, connected together, at all a dangerous contemplation. Okay, so what does that mean? 
nothing about him is making Anne regret saying no to him, uh-huh. essentially. Nothing is gonna, like... Make her be like, hmm, maybe I should have married this guy. At all tempt Anne to, no. yeah, regret mm-hmm. that decision. No, she's not looking at him and being like, oh, it could have been me. <laughs> I, like, I kind of like Charles Musgrove just, like, as a character. I think he is, like, he's kind of like a golden retriever of a man. <laughs> he's just kind of, like, he's friendly... Or, you know, he's like a friendly frat bo- bro, kind of. <laughs> he likes hunting and sports, but... Maybe he's he... like a Labrador retriever. Yeah, maybe. Okay. okay. He's not he... a golden child, I think. He's just like a... He's just like there. I, I guess more just like a dog, kind yeah. of. He's like a dog of a man. <laughs> he just like... He likes hunting. He's pretty friendly, but he's not like... Very intelligent. Very intelligent. No. He's not super charming. Mm-mm. And I think, you know, that... I... <laughs> We're not really going to dwell too much in this book on the past between this, like, pasting proposal of Charles Musgrove's to Anne. And I think the fact that then he moved on to Mary right away is indicative of how neither of them look back on this as, like, a sore subject in their past. Like, I don't even think Charles regrets it that much. I think the fact that he moves on to Mary shows how little romance there was in their proposal to begin with, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, he says he doesn't have a lot of intelligent so if he were a little more um intelligent even maybe a little more emotionally intelligent maybe he would regret um um not marrying Anne. but like he doesn't have that um he doesn't have that uh self um introspection to realize that uh, this is all inference now but i don't think he like looks at Anne getting along with his children better than his own wife does and thinks like man i should have married her i don't think charles would make that connection i think it would just be like well i'm glad they're quiet for the moment <laughs> right I, I think that's the kind of person he is charles's priority is hunting and that's and he's very satisfied with that <laughs> and we also have to remember that you know the Elliots and the Musgroves are the two richest families in a close in close proximity. It's almost natural that he would have proposed to one of the daughters. It's almost like immaterial which one he wound up marrying, right? Yeah. Well, remember, we saw in Pride and Prejudice someone moving from one sister to the next immediately uh, with uh, Mr. Collins, and certainly there was no romance there. I just don't, like... I don't think that there is any call in this book for, like, a big scene between... Uh, Charles and Anne, where they're like, well, you know, where Charles, like, confronts her, like, why didn't you say yes, or something. Yeah, if anything, it was just sort of like a device to show Anne's own um, understanding of herself and her, like, strong sense of self there. Like, she did not just say yes to the next person who proposed to her after her heartbreak. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also important to note that there would be, there's just, like, there wouldn't have been a romance between Charles and Anne like there was between Wentworth and Anne. Like, I doubt there was probably any courtship. It was just like, oh, you know. Well, we're the two richest families. Yeah, so. it makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and if it doesn't work out, well, then I'll just marry Mary. <laughs> Fine, whatever. And it worked out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Mary's all too happy to get married. Okay, so basically, Anne does not regret saying no to Charles Musgrove, even though he's a fine dude. <laughs> he's a fine dude. Yeah. He's a swell dude. Though, at the same time, Anne could believe with Lady Russell that a more equal, with Lady Russell, that a more equal match might have greatly improved him. Greatly improved Charles. Yeah. Yeah. And that a woman of real understanding might have given more consequence to his character and more usefulness, rationality, and elegance to his habits and pursuits. Okay. Who does this hypothetical woman who's going to improve Charles kind of sound like? It sounds like Anne, right? Well, it sounds like Anne, but also I was thinking like Lady Elliot. Like what Lady Elliot did for Sir Walter. 
Oh, I like see. Like, if Charles had a more sensible wife, then uh, he could, like, really jump up and, like, you know, become a better man, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, all these qualities are, like, he's a fine dude, like you said, but if he had a great woman by his side, he could have even leveled up to, like, a great dude. <laughs> uh, a great dude. <laughs> and I think that's, you know, it's fair to say, like, Austin does... She has plenty of ridiculous women characters and plenty of ridiculous male characters. And it just so happens that both Charles and Mary are kind of (laughs) ridiculous. But Charles is slightly less ridiculous. But there's plenty of other instances where the marriage is like a more ridiculous man to a less ridiculous woman. Or to a sensible woman. Mm -hmm. As we saw with With, Sir Walter and Lady Elliot. Right. Okay, so they're both like... Anne is like, I don't regret not marrying him, but I agree with Lady Russell. If he had a better wife, Charles would be, like, an actually a decent man, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of just a fine dude. Well, it says Anne could believe. So it's like, uh-huh. I'm curious, like, did Anne and Lady Russell ever have this conversation, like, over tea? Or is it just sort of like, this is, like, in Anne's brain that, like, Anne thinks this, all these things. Anne thinks, like, a superior woman might have um, uh, maybe, like, saw, like rounded out his uh, rough spots. And... She thinks that Lady Russell would concur, you know? I like... uh, That's a great uh, note, Grace, that pointing out of could. I like to believe that they had a conversation where Lady Russell tried to sway Anne into thinking, like, you could be the woman Mm, to, like, improve him, right? You could be the Lady Elliot to Sir Walter (laughs) Elliot. Wouldn't you want that? Who wouldn't want that? I think... I I like that reading, uh, so I'll just believe that. (laughs) That, like, Anne could believe maybe something Lady Russell told her, which is a better wife would make Charles a better man. She just didn't think. She's just like, I'm not the woman to do that, right? <laughs> a woman could. <laughs> not and me. it's also, I'm not going to throw away, like, not- I knew romance. I'm not going to, like, yeah, enter, like, right? a, a marriage where there's zero romance. After you get a taste of romance, how could you, how could you, you know, choose someone with, like, n- like no romance at all? And I just, I guess that's, like, the, an important point to drive home as to why it's not awkward <laughs> between <laughs> Anne and Charles. There was never any romance between them. No. Like, yeah. So that's that's why they're able to, like, get along, like, as friends, basically, yeah, now. Right. Yeah. It was almost like a business transaction that fell through. Mm-hmm. As it was, he did nothing with much zeal but sport. <laughs> and his time was... Hunting. Yeah. Hunting, me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he right, didn't do yeah, anything yeah. Ex- uh, with zeal except sporting, except hunting. Yeah. And his time was otherwise trifled away, without benefit from books or anything else. So he's not a reader. <laughs> He had very good spirits, which never seemed much affected by his wife's occasional lowness, bore with her unreasonableness sometimes to Anne's admiration, and upon the whole, though there was very often a, there was very often a little disagreement, um, in which Anne had sometimes more, sh- sorry, in which Anne had sometimes more share than she wished, being appealed to by both parties, both Charles and Mary. They might pass for a happy couple. I love that. They might pass for a happy couple. So, except for all of these things, except for the fact that he doesn't seem affected by, um, oh, well, actually, no, it's like, it's like almost like, you know, it's like, because because of these, yeah, because, because he doesn't seem to get affected by his wife's potential depression, Mm -hmm. um, was sort of like able to deal with her unreasonableness to the point where Anne's even, you know, Uh uh, like, admiring him. And upon the whole, there was often a... Oh, wait. And though there was often a... Yeah. (laughs) There was often a little disagreement, which is just, like, I feel like... They were, like, they bicker. They like to bicker, right? Yeah. Like, little arguments often. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And in those arguments, 
both parties, both Charles and Mary, would probably go to him and be like, can you believe what Charles is doing? Can you believe what Mary's doing? Right. Like, can't you talk some sense into them? Like, otherwise, you know, despite all these things, they could they could pass as a happy couple. They're, it's it's not even it's not saying they are a happy couple. It's not even say they do pass as a happy couple. They might pass as a happy <laughs> couple. And then, I, well, that's just, like, Austin kind of having fun. But I think the general sentiment is, like, this is not the greatest marriage. This is not a marriage where either of the parties are improving each other. But, upon the whole, it's a fine marriage, right? Charles can put up with Mary's, like, unreasonableness. I think neither of them have enough, um, um, they have, it seems like they, their brains can't, uh, what's the word, like, they like they're again to use the phrase again they're not emotionally intelligent to enough to recognize that they could potentially be unhappy it's like that they are unhappy that they are unhappy it's like well you know he has his thing she has her thing they have you know they bicker here and there but like it's almost like saying like there it could be worse (laughs) they put up with each other especially charles puts up with mary it seems like yeah they were always perfectly agreed in the want of more money mm-hmm. and a strong inclination for a handsome present from his father. Yeah, meaning moolah. They want money <laughs> from the dad, yeah. Money, please. But here, as on most topics, he had the superiority. For while Mary thought it a great shame that such a present was not made, Charles always contended for his father's having many other uses for his money and a right to spend it as he liked. Let's, let us not forget that he has several young children the uh, mr and mrs yes. musgrove still have several young children living in their house mm-hmm. yeah so mary's a, yeah. so they both want more money they both uh, yeah they both want more money and where That's, do they want that money from the father <laughs> right from mr musgrove yeah <laughs> and charles is mary has she doesn't see why they shouldn't be getting more money but then charles kind of sort of comes to his father's defense and it's like well it's his money he can spend it however he wants so according to Anne and austin who i believe both share the same <laughs> opinions here they are they are alike in their like sort of unproprietous desire for the Mr. Musgrove to give them more money. But Charles has the slight advantage here because he understands, well, maybe my dad has other things to spend that money mm-hmm. on, right? Yeah. Which Mary does not. As to the management of their children, Charles's theory was much better than his wife's, and his practice not so bad. Not so bad. Here, so here's a quote. I could manage them very well if it were not for Mary's interference was what Anne often heard him say, and had a good deal of faith in. But when listening in turn to Mary's reproach of, quote, Charles spoils spoils the children so that I cannot get them into any order, she never had the small, or Anne never had the smallest temptation to say, very true. So what does this paragraph tell us? So, like, it seems like in terms of raising the children, Charles does just like that, slightly a better job at it. And insofar as, like, he, the children might even be better raised if Mary was not raised, if Mary was just completely hands off. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, as harsh as that sounds, Mary, or sorry, Anne maybe even agrees to that point. Oh, yeah. Anne way more agrees that Mary's interfering with the child, children hurts them than Mary's assertion that Charles spoils the children. Anne doesn't think that's true. Right. So, Anne, you know, we can see her being diplomatic in real life like outwardly but inwardly she has her own opinions uh she doesn't uh contradict mary she's just not tempted to agree with mary she's not gonna say very true Uh, she might say like hmm is that so (laughs) you want to keep going sure one of the least agreeable circumstances of anne's residence there at upper cross 
was her being treated with too much confidence by all parties <laughs> and being too much in the secret of the complaints of each house. Too much confidence meaning what? Uh, people are sharing way too much with her. Yeah, they're complaining to her about each other. Yeah. Being too much in the secret of the complaints of each house. Known to have some influence with her sister, Anne was continually requested, or at least receiving hints to exert it, beyond what was practicable. So, known to have some influence with Mary, she was continually requested, or at least received hints to exert her influence beyond what was practicable. Practicable, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I wish you would. I wish you could persuade Mary not to be always fancying herself ill. Was Charles's language, and in an unhappy mood, thus spoke Mary. I do believe if Charles were to see me dying, he would not think there was anything the matter with me. I am sure, Anne. If you would, you might persuade him that I really am very ill, a great deal worse than I ever own. So this is these are the two kind of complaints that Anne hears. Charles is like, I wish Mary wasn't always like pretending <laughs> she was so sick. And Mary's like, if I was on my deathbed, Charles wouldn't care about me, right? I can imagine like Anne wakes up in the morning, goes to get breakfast, and then Charles is saying this thing to her at breakfast, and then later at lunch, uh, Mary's saying the exact opposite. <laughs> and Mary's like, Anne, I wish you would persuade Charles that I really am very ill. I'm as sick as I say. And you know what? I'm even sicker than I say that I am, right? I'm even sicker than I am. I'm even sicker than than dying. Uh, (laughs) I am worse than dying right now. Even though, you know, even though it sounds like Mary's only exaggerated in our, you know, to our eyes, when Mary, in Mary's mind, she doesn't even go far enough. She's even sicker than she (laughs) says she is. Man, this really is like, I see, I see so much of Mrs. Bennet in Mary now. A young Mrs. Bennet. A young Mrs. Bennet. Just like, she's, you know, What's the word? She's got the her heart 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 heart, heart palpitations. Mm-hmm. She's gonna yeah, you know. Except yeah. she has sons. She does have sons. She does so have sons. The so there's that. That's okay. one less thing to worry about. All right. Mary's declaration was: I hate sending the children to the great house, though their grandmama is always wanting to see them, for she humors and indulges them to such a degree, and gives the children so much trash and sweet things <laughs> that they are sure to come back sick and cross for the rest of the day. And Mrs. Musgrove took the first opportunity of being alone with Anne to say, Oh, Miss Anne, I cannot help wishing Mrs. Charles had a little of your method with those children. Mm. Mrs. Charles meaning Mary. They are quite different creatures with you. But to be sure, in general, they are so spoilt. It is a pity you cannot put your sister in the way of managing them. They are as fine, healthy children as ever were seen, poor little dears, without partiality. But Mrs. Charles knows no more how they should be treated. Bless me, how troublesome they are sometimes. I assure you, Miss Anne, it prevents my wishing to see them at our house so often as I otherwise should. I believe Mrs. Charles is not quite pleased with my not inviting them oftener. But you know it is very bad to have children with one that one is obliged to be checking every moment. Don't do this and don't do that. Or that one can only keep in tolerable order by more cake than is good for them. Ha. I love how these two complaints, they inform each other. Uh-huh. They like, they almost like, it's like, you know, it's like, it's like that. They're both like two sides of a truth, which is like the children are spoiled. Who's, <laughs> the, yeah, who's spoiling them? Right. Like, a yeah, little bit of both. A little right? bit of both. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, it's like, 
it's like this, you know, like Ouroboros where it's like, well, the only reason I'm spoiling them is because spoiling them is the only way to get them to behave. And it's like, and that's Mrs. Musgrove speaking. And then Anne would say like, she always, she's always feeding them cake and then they come back and they're so spoiled as a result or whatever. Uh-huh. So it's just like, it, yeah, it is, it is, it's like these two complaints are not just sort of like random complaints. It's like Jane Austen very tactfully um, has like a specific thing that they talk about. And it's like this, like, you know, like this round, this like roundabout way to get to the center of a truth, which is that the kids are spoiled. Well, I think if Mrs. Musgrove and Mrs. Charles, as she said, is Mary, if they could communicate, then a lot of their problems would go away. Yeah. Like Mary feels like Mrs. Musgrove invites the children over more than Mary wants them to go over. Mm -hmm. And Mrs. Musgrove feels like she, Mary wants her to invite them over even oftener, (laughs) right? Yeah. And Mary's like, the reason they're so bad is because Mrs. Musgrove spoils them with all her sweet things and trash, right? Mm -hmm. And Mrs. Musgrove's like, well, the only way, like, Mary must spoil them so bad because the only way I can keep them in order is by giving them cake, right? Hey, it sounds like the winners are here are the children. The children. (laughs) I mean, I don't think, the funny thing is, is like, I don't think these two could ever communicate in a way that would solve these problems, right? No. They would, like, mortify each other. Yeah. If they weren't related, they would probably be best friends. <laughs> okay. So bad communication all around. Yes. But it all comes to Anne. The point is Anne is the receiver of all this. Yeah. And Anne, you know, it's not her place to say anything, to, like, advise anything. So she just kind of has to, she just has to, like, you know, bear witness or, or at least hear about everything that's happening. And it's almost like she herself knows the answer to these things, which is just to, like, you know, like, you're, to your point, communicate, but... She can't do that. She can't say that because it's not within her purview to say that. Well, what is she going to say? Like, you know, oh, you know, Mary, Mrs. Musgrove wouldn't be giving them so many cakes if you, like, taught their children better. Or Mrs. Musgrove, you know, like, Mary doesn't like it when you give them cakes, you know. <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah, no, it's not. It's This is this is the, the Musgrove family. This is the family dynamics that Anne has been thrust into. <laughs> and this is what she... Anne has found her purpose, which is just to be the receiver of complaints, the passive receiver of everyone's complaints. Which is, right? yeah, to hear the hot goss <laughs> from all, all ends. And she doesn't want to hear it. She, she doesn't want she, to hear yeah, it. Yeah, didn't yeah. have to hear this. Okay. Anne had this communication, moreover from Mary, the following. Mrs. Musgrove thinks all her servants so steady... That would be high treason to call them in question. (laughs) But I am sure, without exaggeration, that her upper housemaid and laundry maid, instead of being in their business, are gadding about the village all day long. Gadding meaning talking, I assume? I think just just like like wandering around. Yeah, Yeah, lollygagging. Okay, I meet these, the housemaid and the laundry maid, wherever I go. And I declare I never go twice into my nursery without seeing something of them. If Jemima were not the trustiest, sturdiest creature in the world, it would be enough to spoil her. For she tells me they are always tempting her to take a walk with them. So Jemima must be um, Mary's nurse. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Because she can't go in the nursery without seeing either the housemaid or the laundry maid bothering Jemima, tempting her to go on a walk. I love the uh, the temptations. <laughs> How innocent of a temptation that <laughs> yeah, seems. Yeah, like, like these two are like, I don't know... Soldiers of the devil, soldiers of yeah, Satan, yeah. tempting her like her innocent how uh, her innocent nurse to go on a walk. Yeah, okay. So this is what Mary says, and on Mrs. Musgrove's side, it was this is what Mrs. Musgrove says. I make a rule of never interfering of in any of my daughter's in-laws' concerns. 
for I know it would not do. But I shall tell you, Miss Anne, <laughs> Great. because you may be able to set things right, mm. set things to rights, that I have no very good opinion of Mrs. Charles' nursery maid. Oh, boy. I hear strange stories of her. And who is the nursery maid? Jemima. Jemima, yeah. I hear strange story- stories of her. She was always upon the gad. And from my own knowledge, I, de- I can declare she, she is such a fine-dressing lady that she is enough to ruin any servant she comes near. Mrs. She, yeah, go ahead. Well, yeah. So basically, she is a fine, such a fine dressing lady that she's enough to ruin any servant she comes near. Miss Mrs. Musgrove is criticizing how well dressed the nurse is. Right. Servants should not be well dressed. I don't think that's maybe a little shorthand. Yeah, servants shouldn't be that well dressed, so Mary should get on top of that. Yeah, maybe because, they're like paying her too much too. Is that oh, like a maybe subtext? But what are you gonna say? Well, yeah, it's into the point. It's like, oh, she's so well dressed that she's gonna be putting these terrible ideas into my my servants, and, uh, and then what? They're gonna be just oh, and then yeah, you know what? To your point, maybe then. Mrs. Musgrove's servants will start asking for more money or something. Or, like, why aren't my clothes as fine as Jemima's, yeah. right? Uh, your daughter's nursery maid. <laughs> okay, yeah, so this is what Mrs. Musgrove says, that Jemima is such a fine-dressing lady that she is enough to ruin any servants she comes near. Any servants she comes near! <laughs> like the plague. Uh, Mrs. Charles quite swears by her, I know. But I just give you this hint, that you may be upon the watch, because... If you see anything amiss, you need not be afraid of mentioning it. Hmm. So just more of like more of the two same. different sides of the same story. Yeah, right? two uh, instances where Anne is caught in the middle and hearing two two versions of the truth or whatever. All these servants are probably just like goofing off on their own <laughs> about the gad. But according to Mary, <laughs> it's the servants of the great house whose fault it is. And according to Mrs. Musgrove, it's Mary's servant who is in fault, right? Yeah, I want to believe the truth is not that the, oh, the servants are actually all doing their absolute best being servants, but it's the truth is that they're all, they're all um, gadding about. <laughs> they're all in the gad. Yeah, right? they're yeah. all, you know, wasting time trying to convince each other to go to, to, go to, the, to go waste time in the village. To or go whatever. on a walk. To go on yeah. a walk, yeah. Okay, you want to keep reading? Again, it was Mary's complaint, so more complaining, <laughs> that Mrs. Musgrove was very apt, oh, this is the big one, that Mrs. Musgrove was very apt not to give her the precedence that was her due, that was Mary's due, mm. when they dined at the great house with other families. And Mary did not see any reason why she was to be considered so much at home as to lose her place. Okay, what is what is this precedence? Okay, so... There's like a an order of being presented as when there are guests around. It's like it's like in Pride and Prejudice when, for example, when Lydia got married, she then um, jumped the line and became first to walk after um, after her mother because she got married. Mm-hmm. So she went from last place as the youngest daughter to first place because she was the first married. In a similar way, um, and on, on like a larger scale, because Mary is the daughter of a baronet, she should actually be taking the place in front of Mrs. Musgrove, even though it is Mrs. Musgrove's house. Right. But because Mary is the daughter of a baronet, she is of a higher rank, I guess in the realm of, of England, that she should actually be presented first before Mrs. Musgrove. Yeah, so Mary does not like the fact that Mrs. Musgrove comes before her at these social engagements. Mi- yeah, right? Mrs. Yeah. Musgrove is not paying her, paying Mary what Mary thinks is due. Right, and Mary says she did not see any reason why she was to be considered so much as home at home as to lose her place. So it's like, 
it's like she's almost like almost like too um i don't know too okay, well yeah you, you want to say what are you no i think you're i think you're gonna say what i'm thinking <laughs> okay i just like they treat her like she's too much part of the family exactly and they forget that she's a baronet's daughter right? yeah right yeah. they think yeah exactly like, yeah exactly you just nailed it like they think she's just the wife of their son, but actually she is more than that. Uh-huh. She's better than all of them, right? And they forget it. She's better than uh-huh. you rich country folk. Okay. Yeah, so this is Mary's complaint. And I right? think that that part especially is from Sir Walter. Right. Oh, well, that's the old Elliot pride. Yeah, the Elliot pride. Um, okay. And one day, when Anne was walking with only the Miss Musgroves, the daughters of mm. Mr. and Mrs. Musgrove, one of them, after talking of rank, people of rank, and jealousy of rank, <laughs> said, this is her speaking, we don't know which one. One of the Miss Musgroves. I have no scruple of observing to you, so I, I'm going to tell you right now, mm-hmm. how nonsensical some persons are about their place, because... All the world knows how easy and indifferent you are about it. That's a little bit of a tacit insult, but okay. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like saying, yeah. I love how you just don't care how you look. <laughs> <or> <laughs> right, like that. I love how you, yeah, have no pride in, like, your place in life, right? <laughs> but I wish anybody could give Mary, Mary a hint that it would be a great deal better if she were not so very tenacious. Mm-hmm. Especially if she would not be always putting herself forward to take place of mama. Nobody doubts her right to have precedence of Mama, but it would be more becoming in her not to be always insisting on it. It is not that Mama cares about it in the least world, or sorry, cares about it the least in the world, but I know it is taken notice of by many persons. Mm -hmm. Mrs. Musgrove does care about this, I think it's fair to say. Mrs. Yeah, Mrs. Musgrove is like, you're not getting ahead of me in my own house. Uh I don't care who who you are. Right. Yeah, this is my house. You're not going to take precedence over me you're not gonna sit at the head of the table uh but this is coming from the daughters being like oh she doesn't care but it's very unbecoming in mary to be so <laughs> tenacious about coming first yeah right? it's gotten yeah. to the point where other people are starting to talk about it unlike you Anne, you don't care right uh, <laughs> you might as well be a lawyer's daughter for all you care <laughs> how was Anne to set all these matters to rights that's austin speaking mm. She could do little more than listen patiently, soften every grievance, and excuse each to the other, give them all hints of the forbearance necessary between such near neighbors, and make those hints broadest which were meant for her sister's benefit. Mm. Okay. So yeah, Anne's just sort of taking it in stride and playing referee and not taking sides and just, you know, taking it all in. Giving them hints of forbearance. Forbearance. Especially when it comes to Mary. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. In all other respects, Anne's visit began and proceeded very well. Her own spirits improved by change of place and subject, by being removed three miles from Kellyanch. Mary's ailment lessened by having a constant companion. Great. And their daily intercourse with the other family, since there was neither superior affection, confidence, nor employment in the cottage to be interrupted by it, was rather an advantage. So since there's nothing to do in the cottage, there's no one she'd rather be hanging out with or nothing else she'd rather be doing, There's it doesn't bother her that people from the great house are constantly, like, interrupting her, right? Mm. It was certainly carried nearly as far as possible, for they met every morning and hardly spent ever, hardly ever spent an evening asunder. But Anne believed they should not have done so well without the sight of Mr. and Mrs. Musgrove's respectable forms in the usual places or without the talking, laughing, and singing of their daughters. 
So they just, these two houses, the cottage where Charles and Mary's lives and the great house where Mr. and Mrs. Musgrove lives and the whole family, they just, they see each other all the time and Anne is fine with it because, why? Because they wouldn't have done as well without the Musgroves. Like, she doesn't want to be stuck with just Charles and Mary all day long, right? right? Yeah, yeah. Because also the Mr. Mr. Mrs. Musgrove, they also bring young more young people more young people to like distract the musgroves the uh, charles and mary uh, side of the family yeah so she appreciates henrietta and louisa too because like here are some like enthusiastic young people to vary is a distraction yeah, yeah, yeah to distract me a little bit if um if charles is let's say a labrador i think louisa and henrietta could be like little yorkies or something i can see that <laughs> yeah okay Anne played music a great deal better than either of the Miss Musgroves, but having no voice, no knowledge of the harp, and no fond parents to sit by and fancy themselves delighted, her performance was little thought of, only out of civility or to refresh the others, as she was well aware. So the only reason Anne would perform was out of civility or to give the others a break, right? She's basically playing like elevator music. She is like, she is elevator music personified uh, and it's not she's actually a better musician than the miss musgroves mm. it's just that she can't sing she can't play the harp which <laughs> vaults you above all other musicians i don't know the harp is like a cool weird instrument right yeah uh, well also like you're when you're sitting with the harp you see the lady like you see her fully like sitting there whereas like if you're at a piano you're like behind the piano it's easy to like not pay attention to her but like playing with a harp it's almost like you're like with a partner, you know, right. you're just like sitting there with it. So these are the two re- two reasons why Anne's music is ignored for the most part, because she doesn't sing, she can't play the harp. These are two things that put you out to the front, but most especially because she doesn't have two parents sitting by complimenting her, right? Yeah. Bravo! <laughs> That's my daughter! The Musgroves, sorry, the Musgroves are pretty nice, but they maybe are a little coarse, callous. They don't really, they're only going to praise their own daughter's music. No, they're probably, like, talking over Anne's playing, uh, honestly. So the only reason Anne would play is to be polite. Well, others would be polite to her, to, like, invite her, like, Anne, oh, you should play too, and then talk <laughs> over it. Or to give the others a break. Anne knew that when she played, she was giving pleasure only to herself. But this was no new sensation. <laughs> Jesus. Excepting one short period of her life, she had never since the age of 14, never since the loss of her dear mother, known the happiness of being listened to or encouraged by any just appreciation or real taste. So excepting one short period in her life, since her mother died, she had never known someone to listen to her who had real who could really appreciate taste right yeah or has she like even known the yeah the happiness of being listened to Mm. or encouraged by any appreciation of real taste well and who was that captain wentworth of course yeah yeah yeah. i think this is like it's a great sentence because it's like you i mean like i'm getting emotional just like reading it because you this whole chapter is like all about like the ridiculousness of the musgroves and the elder musgroves and all of this like bickering and infighting and Anne's just like stuck in the middle and then it's just like, oh, but don't forget, like, yes, and she's like, her life sucks, but it's like, there, and then and then you're suddenly reminded that there was this one period of her life where she was, like, like truly seen for uh, herself, you know? Yeah. Not since, well, her mother, she, her mother saw her, but then she died. <laughs> and then there was Captain Wentworth for a little while. But it's also a good way of just being like, this is recurrent on Anne's mind, even though she tries to suppress these memories, like, yeah. they're unsuppressible. Right. Like, Yeah. 
like she didn't just lose like a, a great love. She like lost like the only person who like actually appreciated her, pr- appreciated her like in her entirety, like as a human uh-huh. being. Other than like Lady Russell. Other than I mean, even Lady she, Russell, it's is, a little condescending. It is condescending. Times, yeah, yeah. And like she's an old lady too. <laughs> Sorry, Lady Russell. <laughs> no, you're no yeah. dashing, uh, handsome captain. Sorry. Okay. No matter how well-meaning you are. Um, yeah, in music, Anne had always been used to feel alone in the world. And Mr. and Mrs. Musgrove's fond partiality for their own daughter's performance and total indifference to any other person's gave her much more pleasure for their sakes than mortification for her own. (laughs) Meaning what? Um, oh, wait, hold on. Let me just, yeah. So. Well, then, yeah. yeah, so then she's watching Mr. and Mrs. Musgrove, like, watch their daughters play, right? Yeah. And it just gives her pleasure to watch them being appreciated. This is classic Anne. She doesn't, it doesn't upset her that the Musgroves love their daughter's inferior playing (laughs) and totally ignore hers. It just, like, makes them happy for the Musgroves. Makes her happy for the Musgroves, right? Yeah. Like, oh, you know, at least the Musgroves love their daughters, right? Mm -hmm. I might be totally ignored, but I don't resent it. I'm just happy for them. It's a bit saccharine to me. It reads a bit saccharine to me. <laughs> I, don't, I think that's Anne trying to convince her. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah, 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 no, yeah. Okay. The party at the Great House was some, sometimes increased by other company. The neighborhood was not large, but the Musgroves were visited by everybody and had more dinner parties and more callers, more visitors by invitation and by chance than any other family. They were more completely popular. All right, there's guests over all the time. Yep. You want to pick up for him here? The girls were wild for dancing. I love that. The girls were wild for dancing. And the evenings ended occasionally in an unpremeditated little ball. So then, you know, they would want music and then they would start dancing in a line probably. This is more another example of like the Musgrove's country manners. Like Mm. the Elliots would never have an unpremeditated ball, you know. Yeah, let's just push the tables to the side. Uh There was a family of cousins within a walk of Uppercross in less affluent circumstances, who depended on the Musgroves for all their pleasures. All their pleasures. All the, like, all their entertainment, pretty much, right? Yeah. <laughs> if they didn't throw a party, the cousins would have no entertainment. Yeah. Uh, the cousins would come at any time and help play at anything or dance anywhere. Great. And Anne, very much preferring the office of musician to a more active post, a.k.a. dancing, mm-hmm. played country dances to them by the hour together. A kindness which always recommended her musical powers to the notice of Mr. and Mrs. Musgrove more than anything else, and often drew this compliment. Well done, Miss Anne. Very well done indeed. Lord bless me, how those little fingers of yours fly about. <laughs> That's funny. It's not a compliment of her ability. I mean, it's kind of, it's but it's like, look at those fingers go. It's a little <laughs> condescending, right? And they, you know, inject it with a, um, an oath. Lord. <laughs> Lord bless me, yeah. <laughs> So passed the first three weeks. Michael Miss came, and now Anne's heart must be in Kellyanch again. What happens? What's happening? Um, the crops move again. in. Right, exactly. A beloved home made over to others. All the precious rooms and furniture, groves and prospects, beginning to own other eyes and other limbs. Mm-hmm. Prospects meaning uh, views, yeah. nice views. So <laughs> those groves and prospects beginning to own other eyes and other limbs. I love how Kelly Inch owns its inhabitants. It's not yeah. being owned by other limbs and right, other yeah. eyes. Yeah. They're the ones who have are taking the active position there of owning the residence. 
Kelly Inch is taking Kelly Inch, the yeah. active possession of owning its inhabitants. Exactly, right? yeah. Yeah, yeah. She could not think of much else on the 29th of September. And she had this sympathetic touch in the evening from Mary, who, on having occasion to note down the day of the month, exclaimed, Dear me, is not this the day the Crofts were to come to Kelly Inch? I am glad I did not think of it before. How low it makes me. <laughs> sympathetic touch is sarcastic. Yeah. And what is, what's like, why is Mary being kind of like coarse right now? What is, what is she missing out on? The fact that Anne has lived there her whole life. Anne has lived there longer. Yeah. yeah. And she doesn't even include Anne on how it must be affected. It's just like how this affects me, right? Yeah. And she even says, it's like, I'm glad I didn't think of it before. Uh, but here, I'm going to bring it up now. <laughs> how low it makes me. How low it makes me. Uh-huh. And you have no share in it, because clearly you don't care about anything. You're happy just to flit about in the wind. <laughs> the Crofts took possession with true naval alertness and were to be visited. <laughs> Meaning what? With true naval alertness. They just moved in very succinctly and efficiently, mm. like a naval ship. Right on the dot. They're yep. there that day, yeah. And were to be visited, because um, new family comes to town, you visit them. That's right. the, that's the um, what's the word? Proprietors, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Mary deplored the necessity for herself. Nobody, here it is in quotes, nobody knew how much she should suffer. She should put it off as long as she could. Mm-hmm. But it was not easy till she had talked Charles into driving her over on an early day and was in a very animated, comfortable state of imaginary agitation when she came back. Okay, yeah, Mary deplores the necessity of visiting the cross for herself, right? Mm-hmm. She, meaning she does not want to do this, or so she claims. Nobody can know how much this visit would make her suffer, right? And, and she's she, going to put it off for as long as she can. But despite saying this, she was not easy, she was not, like, comfortable, or, like, would not settle down until Charles had taken her over to visit them on a very early day after they moved in. Yeah, and yet she, yeah, was pestering Charles to drive her over uh, instantly. And was in a very animated, comfortable state of imaginary agitation when she came back. This is great. It, it's just, like... Agitated, comfortable, imaginary. I wait. What's it say? Comfortable, imagine. Wait. Animated, comfortable state of imaginary, imaginary agitation. Yeah, it's like, it is truly like Mary. Her default state is to be in agitation. Like she is not comfortable until she is agitated. An imaginary agitation. An imaginary agitation. That's just that is Mary being Mary, being comfortable in imaginary agitation. That is. Mary's true, true state, I guess. (laughs) Anne had very sincerely rejoiced in there being no means of Anne going, of Mm, herself going. So she did not visit with them. Yeah. She wished, however, to see the Crofts and was glad to be within when the visit was returned. So then the then um, propriety calls for the Crofts to then visit the family that visited them. They came. The master of the house was not at home. So, um... Charles. Charles. Yeah, Charles Musgrove, the the younger Charles. They came to visit the cottage, that is. Right. Yeah. But the two sisters were together, and as a chance that Mrs. Croft fell into the share of Anne while the Admiral sat by Mary and made himself very agreeable by his good-humored notice of her little boys, Anne was well able to watch for a likeness, and if it failed her in the features, to catch it in the voice or the turn of sentiment and expression. 
Okay, so the Musgroves came. Charles isn't home, Charles Musgrove, but Anne and Mary are, right? Mm -hmm. And Anne winds up sitting next to Mrs. Croft, and Mary sits next to Admiral Croft, who makes himself very agreeable by taking good-humored notice of the boys. And while this is happening, what is Anne doing with Mrs. Croft? Anne is watching for a likeness, Mm -hmm. and if that failed, uh, if if the likeness failed in uh, Mrs. Croft's features... And um, catches it in the voice or the turn of sentiment and expression. A likeness to whom? Captain Wentworth. Captain Wentworth. Unstated, but if we remember that Mrs. Croft is Captain Wentworth's sister, then, you know, we should remember this. And I think it's unstated because Anne probably doesn't want to even conjure the name Captain Wentworth in her mind, right? She doesn't even want to... I don't even think she wants to, like, consciously think that she's looking for a likeness, but she is, like subconsciously looking for a likeness there. Mm-hmm. She can't help herself but being like, I'm sitting next to his sister, right? right? Yeah. yeah. And even so far as like, well, if I don't see it in the face, then like it, it'll be like in her voice or in her personality or something. Or the turn of expression, right? The yeah. things they say. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Croft, though neither tall nor fat, had a squareness, uprightness, and vigor of form, which gave importance to her person. She sounds like a cap. She sounds like a... An admiral. Uh, or, or like squareness, a, uprightness, and vigor of form. Yeah. yeah. She had bright, dark eyes, good teeth, <laughs> and altogether an agreeable face. I gotta think good teeth is uh, Sir Walter's upbringing, maybe a little bit. Well, I mean, good teeth, I feel like, appears in Pride and Prejudice, too. I think that was just something people looked out looked for. Looked for, I guess yeah. so. I mean, probably a lot of people had not very good teeth, I would I think assume. Caroline, you know, threw Elizabeth a bone and was like, she has good teeth. Or something <laughs> Her like teeth that. are tolerable. Her teeth yeah. are tolerable. <laughs> okay. Um, though Mrs. Croft's reddened and weather-beaten complexion, the consequence of her having been almost as much at sea as her husband, made her seem to have lived some years longer in the world than her real eight and thirty. Mm. So she does look older than 38 because she's been out at sea. Mm-hmm. Her manners were open, easy, and decided, like, the, like one who had no distrust of herself and no doubts of what to do. So she's sure of herself, mm-hmm. knows what to do. Yeah. Without any approach to coarseness, however, or any want of good humor. So she is sure of herself, but not coarse, and still has good humor. I like her. Just based on this. I think Austin likes Mrs. Croft also. Anne gave her credit, indeed, for feelings of great consideration towards herself in all that related to Kelly Inch. And it pleased her, especially, uh, and it pleased her, especially as she had satisfied herself in the very first half minute, in the instance, instant even of introduction, that there was not the smallest symptom of any knowledge or suspicion on Mrs. Croft's side to give a bias of any sort. Okay, let's break that down a little bit. So Anne gave Mrs. Croft credit, indeed, for feelings of great consideration towards herself and all that related to Kelly Inch. What does this mean? Um, that, well, what does it mean? That, that, I, I think it sh- means that Mrs. Croft showed genuine sympathy toward Anne, being like, oh, it must be kind of hard for you to, like, see mm. someone else living in your home, right? Yeah. Well, like, rest assured we're taking care of it. That's just kind of what I imagine. I think she made, like, some gestures that Anne, oh. like, thought were sincere to be like, look, I sympathize with how it might be a little awkward that we're renting your childhood home, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so part A, she give Anne gives... Mrs. Croft credit for this, for being truly sympathetic as to her situation at Kelly Inch. Mm-hmm. And B, it pleases Anne, 
because she satisfied herself in the first half minute, in the instant even of introduction, that there was not the smallest symptom of any knowledge or suspicion on Mrs. Croft's side to give a bias of any sort. Knowledge or suspicion of what? Um, that the whole captain went with history, basically. Yeah, so uh, Anne, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Anne had uh, broken off her engagement to basically Mrs. Croft's little brother. <laughs> or even that she was engaged to him in the first place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. any kind of history. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mrs. Croft, and in, instantly knows Mrs. Croft doesn't know anything about her whole sordid history with Captain Wentworth. Mm. Uh, Anne was quite easy on that head, and consequently full of strength and courage. Till, for a moment, electrified by Mrs. Croft suddenly saying, Here, I'll read Mrs. Croft. It was you, and not your sister, I find, that my brother had the pleasure of being acquainted with when he was in this country. Uh, Anne hoped she had outlived the age of blushing. But the age of emotion, she certainly had not. Mm, so she's feeling things here. She's, what? Like the bottom. <laughs> like I can just imagine like the bottom of her stomach drops out or something. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. yeah, she's like, you know, going about the day and be like, all right, I'm safe. You know, she seems she seems like a good, generally a good person. And um, it doesn't seem like she knows anything about me and um, her brother. And then all of a sudden she's like, Oh, I feel like you've, uh, you know my brother, right? You met him, like, a while ago when he was, when he lived here? Yeah, and she doesn't know which brother she's talking about. So, of course, Anne's mind jumps to Captain Wentworth. Yeah. Also, this is interesting. She hoped she'd outlived the age of blushing. Can you outgrow blushing? Does that ever go away? You certainly don't, if you do, I'm sorry, but you don't outgrow it at 27. Yeah, right. This is just more of Anne being like, I'm an old spinster. <laughs> I'm, I'm Lady Russell's age, basically. Okay. Uh, yeah, so Mrs. Croft says, It was you and not your sister, I find, that my brother had the pleasure of being acquainted with when he was in this country, this uh, county, this area. And then Anne hoped she had outlived the age of blushing, but the age of emotion, certainly she had not. Uh, perhaps you may not have heard that he is married, added Mr. Cro- Mrs. Croft. Oh, boy. Anne could, not, could now answer as she ought, and was happy to feel... When Mrs. Croft's next words explained it to be Mr. Wentworth, of whom she spoke, that Anne had said nothing which might not do for either brother. So, of course, Mrs. Croft was not talking about Captain Wentworth, but Wentworth's older brother, the curate, Mr. Wentworth, who he was staying with when he met Anne. Yep. Uh, And that Mr. Wentworth is married now. And Anne is very relieved when she finds that out, that she didn't say anything to make... That would have been specific to Captain Wentworth, right? Mm. Uh, she had said nothing which might not do for either brother. She immediately, Anne immediately felt how reasonable it was that Mrs. Croft should be thinking and speaking of Edward, and not of Frederick, and with shame at her own forgetfulness, applied herself to the knowledge of their former neighbor's present state with proper interest. Mm. I feel like that happens a lot now in rom-coms where it's like, um, like someone springs a question on you and you're like, oh shit, I've been found out, and then... They and then the person who's asked the question like further elaborates their own question and then the other person realizes that they're talking about something else completely. Uh, you know, like that that scene has pl- been played out a million times and th- basically this is what's happening. This is just what happened here. Oh yeah, yeah. I definitely I know that. I feel like that's a trope mm-hmm. and like the subtext always being like, oh you know, our mind jumps to what we're thinking of first, right? Yeah. The thoughts that are closer to our our hearts. <laughs> Okay, but fear not, and Mrs. Croft is just talking about Mr. Wentworth. Yep, and then Anne was able to compose herself and Mm. talk about Mr. Wentworth with 
the proper amount of interest. Right. As if she was never even engaged to his brother. <laughs> the rest was all tranquility. Till just as they were moving, Anne heard the Admiral say to Mary, We are expecting a brother of Mrs. Crofts here soon. I dare say you know him by name. Mm, oh, great. <laughs> just brother when, is this? Just yeah. when Anne thought she was out of the woods. He was cut short by the eager attacks of the little boys, clinging to him like an old friend and declaring he should not go. These were Mary's children. And being too much engrossed by proposals of carrying them away in his coat pocket, etc., to have another moment for finishing or recollecting what he had begun, Great. Anne was left to persuade herself, as well she could, that the same brother must still be in question. This also happens, too, in a lot of rom-coms where, like, you know, you're about to get to the heart of, like, a big reveal, and then a bunch of kids come, cr- a bunch of kids come running in and start wreaking havoc, and then the tension is broken, and you're like, "No, what was he gonna say?" Uh, this is funny, and it's also just another example of Mary's children being a little unruly, clinging uh, to him like an old friend. Yeah, yeah like this yeah. is the first time they've obviously met, and now they're <laughs> clinging on to this strange man. But I guess he's great with children. He's like, "Oh, I'm gonna put you in my coat pocket and take <laughs> you away." Uh, so he hears Mrs. Croft's brother is coming to visit, and hears this, and she's like, well, it must be Mr. Wentworth, the, the brother we were just talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, classic. Class, so much dramatic irony happening in these paragraphs. And could not, however, reach such a degree of certainty as not to be anxious to hear whether anything had been said on the subject at the other house where the Crawfords had previously been calling. At the Great House. Mm. So the Crofts called at the Great House, then they came and visited at the cottage. And as they were leaving the cottage, uh, Admiral Croft drops this piece of information that Mrs. This Croft's yeah, <laughs> brother is about to visit. And doesn't find out the full circumstances, but she's like, well, I'll probably hear it from the people at the Great House tonight, right? Mm. Okay. The folks of the Great House were to spend the evening of this day at the cottage... And it being now too late in the year for such visits to be made on foot, the coach was beginning to be listened for when the youngest Miss Musgrove walked in. That she was coming to apologize, and that they should have to spend the evening by themselves, was the first black idea. (laughs) And Mary was quite ready to be affronted when Louisa made all right by saying that she only came on foot to leave more room for the harp, which was bringing in the carriage. I like... Okay, so... Louisa, who who is this again? Is it Louisa? Louisa shows up on foot, and it says the first black idea was that the she was coming to cancel, and mm. Charles and Mary and Anne were to spend the evening by themselves. Whose voice is this? Uh, Mary. Yeah, because I guess she hates to be stuck alone with her <laughs> own family. Yeah. Uh, but, and she was quite ready to be affronted. She was also ready to be insulted on this head, right? You said Uh, you were going to come. Yeah. Yeah. But no worries. Louisa just walked so that there could be more room for the harp. (laughs) Um, So the image of like Mary, or sorry, Louisa walking alongside a harp that's just holding Oh, sorry. Walking alongside a carriage. Well, walking ahead of a carriage. Ahead of a yeah. carriage. Yeah, with the um, yeah, like carriage in tow with a harp in it is just like I don't know. It's just like such a funny image. She's I, also yeah. Go ahead. What? Mary's just also ready to be like offended at any moment. Oh yeah. Uh, she was just like looking for it, kind of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, and also I, I, you know, we don't get to. We're gonna see a lot more of Louisa later, but here's like a real first introduction to her character. She's you know pretty self 
she's pretty like self-reliant she's, sure she's yeah, resilient walking over she has yeah. her she follows like she just has comes up with these ideas and then just follows through on them like she walks here with her, her harp and she's like this I, late in the year yeah this yeah, late in the yeah. year and she's like yeah and very you know self-sufficient all that all that stuff. all right good call that's <laughs> that's good to good uh background for what's about to happen with louisa okay and I will tell you our reason, Louisa added, and all about it. I am come on to give you notice that Papa and Mama, Mama, Papa, Mama, <laughs> are out of spirits this evening, especially Mama. She is thinking so much of poor Richard, and we agreed it would be best to have the harp, for it seems to amuse her more than the piano forte. I will tell you why she is out of spirits. When the Crofts called this morning, they called here afterwards, did they not? Did not they? The Crofts happened to say that Mrs. Croft's brother, Captain Wentworth, is just returned to England, or paid off, or something, <laughs> and is coming to see them almost directly. So paid off being like, I guess, paid out of the military, like he got his severance and left. Yeah, he got his bag of money and left. Which is not what happened. He's just like on leave now, but I think it's a testament to how little Louisa was listening to this conversation. Yeah, and how little she seems to have any knowledge of, let's say, the Navy... Yeah, certainly yeah, less yeah, knowledge exactly. than let's say Anne. Uh -huh. Okay, so Louisa's like, I'm telling you why we're bringing the harp this evening. <laughs> it's because when the cross called this morning, they called here afterwards, did not they? The they happened to say that Mrs. Cross' brother, Captain Wentworth, has just returned to England or paid off or something, and is coming to see them almost directly. And most unluckily, it came into Mama's head when they were gone that Wentworth or something very like it was the name of poor Richard's captain at one time, I do not know when or where, but a great we great while before he died, poor fellow. And upon looking over his letters and things, she found it was so, and is perfectly sure that this must be the very man, and her head is quite full of it and of poor Richard. <laughs> so we must all be as merry as we can, that she may not be dwelling upon such gloomy things." Great. This is great psychology. Great. So this is why she brought the harp is because her mom is in a t is in a really sad mood because she's thinking about this this poor Richard. This poor Richard. And she uh. thinks playing the harp will uh, liven her mother's spirits. Okay. Let's the, the most important pertinent part about this paragraph is that and knows for certain that it is not Mr. Wentworth who's coming to visit. It's Captain Wentworth. Also telling that, well, it, it's, I mean, it, it makes for a great drama that the person who breaks the news is Louisa. Mm, foreshadowing. Mm. And she can't even remember, like, certain facts about him. Uh, Wetworth or something. Uh -huh. He, like, came home from England to get his money <laughs> or something. He was paid off or something. Or something. Yeah. All right. You, will you read this paragraph about poor Richard for us to give us the full context of what she's talking about? The real circumstances of this pathetic piece of family history were that the Musgroves had had the ill fortune of a very troublesome, hopeless son, and the good fortune to lose him before he reached his 20th year. Ouch. That he had been sent to sea because he was stupid and un unmanageable on shore. That he had been very little cared for at any time by his family, though quite as much as he deserved. <laughs> Seldom heard of and scarcely at all regretted when the intelligence of his death abroad had worked its way to Uppercross two years before. Oh my God. Okay, all this right. This is very harsh. This is very, it's very dark. So, but this is the context. So, Louisa comes over and she's like, we're bringing the harp tonight. And that's because <laughs> Mama and Papa are out of sorts. 
And the reason they're out of sorts is because this Captain Wentworth who's coming to stay was one at one time the captain of our my dead brother, poor Richard, <laughs> right, who died in the Navy. He died in the Navy. Uh, and, and then this is, and now this is Austin coming in to tell us the full, the full piece of, the pathetic piece of family history. Right. Pathetic meaning, like, inspiring pity. Not necessarily how we would use it in our current context. But at the same time, like, Austin does not feel any sympathy for this Richard character, or really the Musgroves, honestly. Yeah. Pathetic is... It might even, to some degree, let's say, like, maybe, like, 80-20 pathetic, Uh, like, pitiful, and 20%, let's say, like, what we understand as pathetic. It's like this family was saddled with this, like, with this son who, (laughs) who, whatever, like, the, um, sorry, the ill fortune was that this family had this son. Had a son, yeah. And this good good fortune fortune is that he died before he turned 20. He had 20, yeah. He had been sent to sea because he was stupid and unmanageable on shore. And he had been very little cared for at any time by his family, though quite as much as he deserved. So he was little cared for by his family, but according to Austin, and this is Austin talking right now, that little bit of care they had for him was as much as he deserved. (laughs) And he was seldom heard of and scarcely at all regretted when the intelligence of his death abroad, like, you know, away from England, had worked its way to Uppercross two years before. So even before he died... Um, no one heard from him, mm-hmm. and no one really regretted sending him off. No one's like, oh, I miss him so much, and then they find out that he died. This is, I'm very much drawn to this paragraph. This is probably the harshest sentence in almost all of Austin. Yeah. They had the ill fortune of a troublesome, hopeless son, and the good fortune to lose him before he reached his 20th year. She was like, here, she is saying it's a good thing that this man died before he turned 20. Yeah, it's a good thing that this man died before further embarrassing his family, I guess. Uh, Yeah. And it's just another testament to how persuasion is not your typical comedy you're not your typical romantic comedy it is packed full of death and like dark things mm-hmm. it's, no, <laughs> some yeah yeah austin like she really pulls no punches with this one like uh, you think in the you think it's like the sentence that goes the musgroves have the ill fortune of something you think it's gonna have to do with a death but it's actually the the misfortune is having the son having had the son having had the their son. good fortune was that he died well, then we'll see why. To Austin, well, we'll see uh, why it's like almost maybe perhaps like a good fortune. Okay, well, let's continue reading. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He had, in fact. This poor Richard, yeah. Yeah, he had, in fact. Um, he, oh, wait, sorry. He had, in fact, though his sisters were now doing all they could for him by calling him poor Richard, been nothing better than a. Sorry, I was a dickhead. Than a thick headed, <laughs> unfeeling, unprofitable Dick Musgrove who had never done anything to entitle himself to more than the abbreviation of his name, living or dead. Ouch. So no one even called him Richard in his life, apparently. No. And he doesn't even deserve the, like, honor of being called Richard. All he is is a thick-headed, unfeeling, unprofitable Dick Musgrove. <laughs> Great name. <laughs> and he had never done anything to entitle himself to more than the abbreviation of his name, living or dead. Ouch. <laughs> this is, uh, Austin really, it feels like, this feels personal almost. Yeah, this feels yeah. targeted. <laughs> yeah, who is she talking about? <laughs> yeah, who is this a stand-in for in her <laughs> right. life? Um, yeah. This is, you know, Austin is not uh, subscribed to, like, modern sensibilities in a lot of ways, and this is one of them, like, she's not gonna soften the edges of a dead person, you know, if she didn't like them when they were living, then they're not gonna get a nice, like, 
paint job when they're dead. No, right? yeah, she's there's not no going to burnish be, their reputation. There's not going to yeah. be any like posthumous honors in uh-huh. his name. He's not going to be buried with like I don't know titles or name or um, whatever. It's, it's just Dick Musgrove. Rip. Well, let's keep reading because okay. my next the further question is like how seriously does she treat the the grieving of this family. Yeah. Obviously, Louisa doesn't care. I don't think she, like, what Louisa is doing is making him poor Richard when he was Dick Musgrove. <laughs> but I don't think it really affects her that much. Well, but. I think that's why the, um, the, the fortune of losing him is that now at least this is what he will be known for, is dying at sea. Uh-huh. Not for being thick-headed, unfeeling, unprofitable Dick Musgrove. Right. It's like he was almost able to elevate himself in that way by being a dead man. The best thing he could have done for his family. Okay. Uh, He had been several years at sea and had, in the course of those removals to which all midshipmen are liable, Mm -hmm. and especially such midshipmen as every captain wishes to get rid of, been six months on board Captain Frederick Wentworth's frigate the Laconia. Yeah, forget being a ship. So he'd been several years at sea, and in the course of those, he had been removed to several, like he had moved several ships. Like he had been on several ships during his tenure in the Navy, yeah. right? Because he, he was, uh-huh. it's okay. So he was a midshipman, it, it looks yeah. like. And he, um, so yeah. At first, it's like, yeah, he got moved around as much as midshipmen are liable to get moved around. And especially such midshipmen as every captain wishes to get rid of, uh, which means no one wanted him. No on one wanted him. Yeah, much like his family, no captain wanted him. Yeah. And that, but he had been six months aboard uh, Captain Fre- Frederick Wentworth's frigate, mm-hmm. the Laconia. Yeah. And from the Laconia, he had, under the influence of his captain, written the only two letters which his father and mother had ever received from him during the whole of his absence. Mm-hmm. During the whole time that he was away from home. Yeah. That he'd only he's only written two letters and that was because Captain Wentworth prompted him to do it. That is to say, the only two disinterested letters. All the rest had been mere applications for money. Oh, so he had written more letters, but they were all just begging for money, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, the only two letters yeah, disinterested the only two money uh, sorry, the only two letters, yeah, like you said, that weren't that were disinterested, that were not that did not have ulterior motives. And the rest were all for money. So we know who this guy is. We know who this poor Richard, this Dick Musgrove yeah. is, basically. He's just like a, a profligate. He's a prodigal. Yeah. He spends his parents' money. He's you know, not a good midshipman. Yeah, go ahead. Right. Yeah. Oh, you know what? It just made me, reminded me of, like, this is probably where um, Mr. Musgrove's money is going towards, instead of towards Lou, um, Mary and Charles, is because uh, he's sending all of this money to his deadbeat son. Not anymore. <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> In each letter, Dick Musgrove had mm, he had spoken Richard. <laughs> yeah. Richard. He had spoken well of his captain, but yet so little were they in the habit of attending to such matters, so unobservant and incurious as they were to the names of men or ships, that it made had made scarcely any impression at the time, and that Mrs. Musgrove should have been suddenly struck this very day with a recollection of the name Wentworth as connected with her son seemed one of those extraordinary bursts of mind which do sometimes occur. Okay. So, uh, they, they, when they got these letters, they didn't really make much of an impression. When the Musgroves got these letters from poor Richard, they didn't make any impression on them, really. Mm-mm. But now that he's dead and Mrs. Uh, Musgrove heard the name Wentworth, all of a sudden it springs upon her mind, hey, that was the Wentworth who was... Poor Richard's captain. Yeah. Dick must. Poor Dick's captain at one point, right? <laughs> yep. Um, 
So Mrs. Musgrove had gone to her letters and found it all that she supposed. And the re-perusal of these letters, after so long an interval, her poor son, poor son, gone forever, and all the strength of his faults forgotten, had affected her spirits exceedingly and thrown her into greater grief for him than she had known on first hearing of his death. Damn. So she's feeling more grief now than she did when she first found out that he died. Assumedly because maybe it affected her a little bit, but it didn't affect her all that much. Maybe there was some part in the back of her mind was like, woof, glad to get rid of this one, right? But now all of a sudden she is awash with new emotion. Uh Um, I feel like it's pretty safe to say most times you almost every time you see the word poor like poor blank in austin it's at least partially sarcastic right yeah it's probably what the it's probably what mrs musgrove is convincing herself that she's thinking like my mm-hmm. poor son died at yeah, sea yeah. but clearly they did not she she care, she is more besotted is that the right term besotted i don't know sounds right to me she's just yeah. she's more um upset now upon the revisit of the her dead son than she was when she first found out that uh, her son had died. So there, the sentiments about him were not that much different than Austin's own sentiments, seemingly. <laughs> if anything, theirs were more indifference, and Austin's... The, the narrator of this book is like, this was this man deserved to die. <laughs> this was a bad man. Well, yeah. I mean, this uh, is just also, like... We're gonna get more into it, but it is like, there is there's something to, you know... The, the the pageantry of grieving for a son, you know, of grieving mm-hmm. for your son who died at sea. And so I think if, you know, it's like his death is doing more for his family because now his mother has this sort of like, has this, has this like, almost like, um what's the word? I don't know. She has like this, this, like, I don't know, this this thing to like, almost like brag about, you know what I mean? Like, you know something that she can hold over her friends is that she has a she has a she has a son who died at sea. Well, this is a I don't know. It's an interesting question. How what the real emotional state of Mrs. Musgrove is at the time at this time? Mm-hmm. We know that she didn't care very. She cares. We know that she cares more now about Richard's death than she did when she first hear, heard of it. Right? Mm-hmm. It's affecting her more now. Mm-hmm. I don't like. But I, don't, I just I'm just thinking of like again going back to. Pride and Prejudice. Like, it's obviously not the same... It's not an equivalency, but it's like, you know, when Bingley first leaves Jane, Mr. Bennett has that statement about how now... How every girl likes to be crossed in love because it gives her something over her friends. Uh, I think I'm kind of drawing a, a similarity there where it's like, well, now it's like she gets to, like, kind of cash in this this dead son <laughs> in a bit. A, a bit. reason to bring him up again, maybe? Yeah, Yeah, right? yeah, it's... A, something something I, I feel like there's a great like short story like in this situation of like like this death that's all of a sudden affecting you more now mm. than it did at one point like per particularly a mother for a son for a dead son mm-hmm. i mean okay, okay if i were to be more generous a more generous reading other than just like her selfishness is that like he is the the captain we're sorry this captain wentworth he is the the one captain who maybe like was able to put him in his like you know uh, what's the word like build some character in, in old dicky you know like he prompted him to write the disinterested exactly, letters exactly yeah right? so uh, he is sort of like in that dick <laughs> like in that way the captain sort of was like a uh, like a maybe like a paternal figure to 
poor Richard. I think that's a great insight. I think, like, you know, maybe when she first heard of it, there was no fond associations to put to poor Richard's, like, death, right? It's mm-hmm. like, oh, he, this unmanageable son died, and he hasn't even, like, taken the effort to sustain a relationship. But when she hears Wentworth's name, she's like, wow, like, this makes me think of, like, the two instances where he was actually a dutiful son, right? Yeah, maybe there's something uh, like something there. Maybe like maybe there was something to poor Richard after all. Yeah, maybe. Right? Uh, yeah, he's earning that title now in death, poor Richard. <laughs> I guess it's also a testament to Wentworth too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Let's keep going. We can. We'll talk about this more. Okay. Mister Musgrove was, in a lesser degree, affected. Likewise. Um, <laughs> in a lesser degree. <laughs> And when they reached the cottage, they were evidently in want, first, of being listened to anew on this subject, and afterwards, of all the relief which cheerful companions could give. And also, this is just great Regency psychology when Louisa says, we must be all, we must all be as merry as we can, so that she may not be dwelling upon such gloomy things. Like, let's just all, like, have a great attitude. <laughs> like, maybe she'll move on faster, right? Hey, she brought, she lugged that harp here on, uh-huh. in her carriage, yeah, and she right. walked in she walked, so that uh-huh. her, her harp could be carried. Yeah, that's what's really going to bring uh, Mrs. Musgrove out of this depression, a little harp music, right? <laughs> do you want to, do you want to start, take over? Okay. To hear them talking so much of Captain Wentworth, repeating his name so often, puzzling over past years, and at last ascertaining that it might, that it probably would, turn out to be the very same Captain Wentworth, whom they recollected meeting once or twice after their coming back from Clifton, a very fine young man, but they could not say whether it was seven or eight years ago, was a new sort of trial to Anne's nerves. Alright, what else happened with Captain Wentworth seven or eight years ago? Uh, she jilted him! <laughs> yeah, exactly. So this is hard for Anne's nerves. To hear them talking so much of Captain Wentworth, they're repeating his name all the time, they're trying to figure out, like, the last, how certain years lined up, <laughs> and then they're remembering when they met him, like, seven or eight years ago, which just so happened to be right around the same time that, as you said, Anne jilted him, right? <laughs> that would be, like, in Wentworth's words. <laughs> Anne was persuaded to give her up against all better inclinations, might be how Anne would phrase it. <laughs> yeah, let's let's go with that. Okay. And I, okay, so this, all of this poor dick business is basically uh, a way to get to, they're talking about Wentworth all the time, and it's hard on Anne, right? Right. Anne found, however, that was one to which she must inure herself. Since he actually was expected in the country, she must teach herself to be insensible on such points. Mm. more of just like Anne's like this is my education you know yeah I gotta learn that no one cares about the things that matter to me and I gotta learn to just like deal with the fact that Wentworth is gonna be back in my life now right this is just one more thing I gotta adapt to I adapted to the Musgroves surely I can adapt to being in the same room with the only love of my life who Uh, I was persuaded like you said to um to um refuse to give up to right? give up yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> for both of our own uh, it, and it's like you know the world i just have to adapt to the world you know nothing I, I can't do anything to change how the world is okay and not only did it appear that he was expected and speedily oh boy but the musgroves in their warm gratitude for the kindness he had shown poor dick and very high respect for his character Stamped as it was by poor Dick's having been six months under his care, and mentioning him in strong, though not perfectly well sprout praise, as a fine, dashing fellow, only too particular about the schoolmaster, 
were bent on introducing themselves and seeking Wentworth's acquaintance as soon as they could hear of his arrival. All right, that was a long sentence. I'm sorry. Let's go through this again. Okay. Okay. And not only did it appear that Wentworth was expected and speedily, but the Musgroves, in their warm gratitude for the kindness he had shown, poor Dick, poor not poor Richard, poor Dick, <laughs> and the very high respect they had for his character, stamped as it was by poor Dick's having been six months under Wentworth's care, and the fact that poor Dick mentioned him in a strong, though not particularly well-spelt praise... So, in a letter, poor Dick mentions Wentworth as a fine, dashing fellow, fellow with one L, <laughs> only too particular about the schoolmaster. To too spell T-W-O. Particular spelled with an E. So, the schoolmaster being like, so, okay, <laughs> poor Dick writes his family this letter about Wentworth being like, he's a fine fellow, only he, like, makes me, like, study with the schoolmaster a little too hard. Because they would have, like, schoolmasters above these ships. Mm. And obviously it's not saying in, because he's, like, misspelled half the words in this letter. <laughs> but then, yeah, isn't he, like, from a, well, like, a wealthy family? Well, remember it says the Musgroves were wealthy but not educated. Oh, that's right. And not elegant. They said that the Louisa and Henrietta were educated. Yes. I guess they didn't invest a lot in Richard's poor Dick's education. Hey, maybe when Louisa and Henrietta came around, they got more money and was able to send them to school. I mean, if I was to, like think of like just invent a situation on my own it would be like oh you know maybe they invested a little bit into richard's education and nothing stuck and like he was supposed to have a higher position in life but he's just such like he was such a loser basically that they sent him into the navy yeah it said like he was completely useless on land Uh so they sent him to sea (laughs) see the thing is like the navy and maybe like Sir Walter was tapping into this a little bit with how, you know, someone could rise above you whose father you, your father would be ashamed to speak to. <laughs> so that, like, if you're someone like Wentworth who's looking to move up in the world, the Navy is a good place for you to go. Mm. And if you're someone like Richard who already has the opportunities but just doesn't, like, make any use of them, then that would just be, like, a place to exile yourself to, I guess, right? Yeah. Like, essentially, it's, it sounds like, you know, like... It's the equivalent of, like, sending your son to military school. It's like, well, I'm just going to send you to the Navy to teach you some character. Or to just get rid of you. Just get rid of you. Okay. All right. So, regardless, and this is a really long sentence, I'm sorry, but the Musgroves, in their their gratitude for the kindness he had shown Richard, as exemplified in how Richard talked about Wentworth in his letter, were bent on introducing themselves to Wentworth and seeking his acquaintance as soon as they heard of his arrival, right? Yeah. As soon as they could hear of it. Uh, yeah, as soon as the Musgroves could hear of, of Wentworth's arrival, they were going to introduce themselves and seek his acquaintance because of all he had done for poor Dick and because of how poor Dick had mentioned him in a letter as a fine fellow with one L. Hey, I mean, you know, if indeed their son was complete trash and this this letter, which actually pays him a compliment, um, appeared to his parents, like, I would want to meet this man too. I think... I'm going to give Mrs. Musgrove some credit. I don't think Mr. Ah. Musgrove cares that much, but I'm going to give... We'll see in future chapters, too. Like, I think that there has... And I think it's the mention of Wentworth, and it's a testament to Wentworth. Like, he was the one who found some good in poor Dick, right? Yeah. And the mention of his name, like, all of a sudden reminds Mrs. Musgrove that there was some good in this son, in this dead son of mine, right? 
You're maybe you're right. Yeah. At least you wrote me two letters. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I think uh, this was a this was actually just a great way to demonstrate Wentworth's character. Like it is a, it is obviously like a funny injection of or a funny slash harsh slash like very brutal injection of this random dead son. But it is a great way to demonstrate Wentworth's character is that like, you know, he got through to him. If Wentworth yeah. could get through to him, then Wentworth must be just this great guy, you know? Yeah, this stupid, unmanageable, thick-headed dick. <laughs> <laughs> like, it must even even him Wentworth was able to get through to, right? Right. And this and what is like what is this all doing for the story? What is the purpose of all this poor dick business? To get Wentworth to come? Yeah, yeah, to get Wentworth and Anne in the same room. To make yeah. the Musgroves really want to make this connection with Wentworth, yes, right? right. Uh, that's what that's doing for the story. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I just think it speaks to this, like the tone of persuasion that this sort of mechanism of the plot involves, like, a dead son, involves death, and, and the death of, like, someone who no one really cared for that much, too. Yeah. Well, you know, out of death can come, can spring new life, yeah, you exactly. know? Yeah, exactly. Okay, you want to finish off this last thing? It's just, it's also, like, there's so much death in this book. None of it happens on in the present moment. Nothing, none, no deaths happen on the page. We'll see almost a death, spoiler <laughs> alert. But, uh, and I, I think that's right. Like, I, a lesser author would, like, make us watch all these brutal deaths. But Austin, like, just creates the the dark tone of this world by, like, letting them live on the periphery. Yeah, and letting the, the characters who are living feel the effects, feel the, you know, a modern word would be to feel the trauma of mm-hmm. the deaths, you know, clearly with um, Anne feeling the effects of Lady Elliot's death. And here we have, you know, Mrs. Musgrove, and to a lesser extent, Mrs. Mr. Musgrove, feeling the uh, reper- rep- repercussions, the, um, the reverberations of a son that they kind of had written off, you know, years ago. Yeah, reverberation is a great word. Reverberation, for this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just another instance of like the past coming back to haunt you, kind of, mm. right? To put it in a more cliched way. Yeah, the let's say the figurative ghosts still uh, haunt these halls. Oh, poor Dick. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right, all right. So the resolution of doing so helped to form the comfort of their evening. The resolution of seeking the acquaintance of Wentworth help to form the comfort of the Musgrove's evening. So this is, like, comfort to them in their sorrow. Yep. Great, so we didn't need the harp after all. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All we needed was Wentworth. (laughs) Okay. All right. So Longest chapter, but... Yeah, yeah. Any any takeaways? What are, what are the takeaways here? The takeaways are that Captain Wentworth is coming to town. He is coming to town, and he cannot be avoided. Mm-mm. The Musgroves are intent on, they're bent on, like, making him an acquaintance of theirs, right? That's right. And, um, it's about it, I would say, you know. Anne is sort of, Anne is settling in to her new temporary situation at Upper Cross. Um, we'll see what happens. But the plot is really rolling here. Now that Wentworth is coming back, so the plot is happening. We are in the midst of it. Yes, uh, yes, 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 we are. Okay. Um, there's. I'm sure there's more to say, but we'll leave it until next chapter. Yep. So until chapter... Well, we should say that if you want to oh, talk right. to us, if you want to ask us questions, criticize, hey, we, we can take it. <laughs> uh, if you have anything you want to say, how can our listeners reach us, Grace? You can reach us at secondimpressionspod at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Um, so until the next chapter, yeah, I'm, I'm Grace. Tom. And I'm Tom. Bye.